You are listening to episode 96 of Shades Midweek, a podcast where we talk about theology, culture, and all things Shades. We are recording this podcast inside of Four Stream Studio here at SBCC, right here off of Oxmoor Road. I am John Mark Rowe, one of the hosts of Shades Midweek, and I am joined as usual by my good friends, Jonathan Haves and Brad Brown. It's a Wednesday. How's everybody holding up? We're here. This is literally midweek. This is midweek right now. It is. It is. I'm holding up well, but I'm a little concerned about you, JM. Tell me about this drink that you have sitting right here. What, some, what is this? Some sort of cold brew coffee, 100% Colombian. Uh, caffeine content, 225 milligrams per can, which is equivalent to 2.3 cups of coffee. <laughs> 11 you, fluid ounces. Of and you stole this, right? I, I did not. Uh, someone left it behind, and they didn't. They didn't label it. I'm concerned. So I don't know who it belongs to. I'm concerned if you drink all of this, your heart's gonna explode. There, there's several in there I'd, in the refrigerator here at Shays, and I don't know who they belong to. But you know, when we get this kitchen thing figured out, everybody can have their own stuff. Label it. Everybody can just bring their stuff. Everybody can have their own the refrigerator. Fridge. Really, <laughs> there's so many refrigerators in there. Yeah, the refrigerators are pretty oh, great. Man. I tell you what, I'm excited about. What are you excited about, ladies and gentlemen? For the first time ever in the history of Auburn University basketball, we are the number one ranked team in the country. This is news to me. Brad, you didn't know this? I didn't know this. Let me spend the next 20 minutes asking questions about it. <laughs> A few of us got together on Saturday for Joseph Wonski's birthday and watched the Auburn Tigers dismantle and destroy the Kentucky Wildcats. And it was just a glorious, glorious game. So many great plays. It was great. Then we were ranked number one on Monday. And then last night we went on the road and played the Missouri Tigers, who are kind of a fledgling SEC team. And and we had our best game of the season. We had our worst game of the season and almost lost. We won by one point. Are you getting a phone call right we now? We should Brad? have lost. It was actually the SVCC doorbell. Should we answer it and see who's behind the doorbell? Just just live on midweek, we'll just answer the doorbell. Well, this is a great segue not to interrupt what you were talking about, John Mark, but we do have a doorbell at SVCC. <laughs> so if you are a member and you are coming to meet with us, don't stand outside in the cold or the heat. Simply press that doorbell and we will get an alert to our phones. Which we will ignore like we just which did. Which we will <laughs> most likely ignore, but nonetheless we'll be aware of your presence oh. and we will send somebody down to open the door for you. We're getting high tech. That's right. Getting high tech. Well, guys, I know that we can't let all the details out of the bag, but uh-huh. one last thing before we move on that I am really excited about. Jim, you know, you just said at the beginning of this episode that this is episode 96, which we won't talk about why there wasn't an episode last week. We'll, we'll just keep that to ourselves. We'll leave that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, that means that episode 100 is right around the corner. Wow. That's right. It yeah. is. Yeah. Episode and 100. We had a brainstorm sesh the other day, and we've got a few details left to get into place. But, guys, I'm more excited than ever about episode 100 of Shades Midweek. Should the people be excited? Everyone should be excited, I think. I would imagine everyone's already excited, just anticipating the 100th episode. I, and I imagine they're thinking, what are they going to do? Oh, right. this is, is going to involve you, all of you. 
I've talked to a number of Shades of Midweek listeners that cannot stop talking about the fact <laughs> that the 100 episode is approaching. Yeah. They've asked me multiple, multiple times, what are you guys doing for the 100th episode? Can we be invited? Can we come on the show? Please, we love it so much. They're leaving us five-star reviews Gosh. on iTunes. James, how do you handle the pressure that comes with the fan? <sighs> you know, you just take it day by day. You don't let it get to your head, and you just pray. You really just pray first. We, we, are, receiving, good we are currently receiving gift baskets. Uh, that have a hundred of our favorite items in them. So, like, you know, for instance, I really like uh, Reese Cups, and I recently got a gift basket with a hundred Reese Cups in it. Brad, how have your gift baskets been looking? Well, I can't say for tax purposes. <laughs> I recently got a hundred Apple TVs that I'm planning on. I, I, I'm going to be very busy with eBay later this afternoon. Yeah, wow, that's really helpful. You know, people might have believed my gift basket thing till that. No, I'm just kidding. No gift baskets. We're but we do. We are being serious about that we're going to do something uh, really special that we're really excited about for the 100th episode, and it is going to involve you. We'll have more details, hopefully, yeah. next week. Well, and back to my joke about the tax thing. Isn't Don't you have to report a gift over like $15,000? That just reminds me of uh, an episode of Parks and Rec. I think in the episode, like uh, Leslie gets like a gift basket, and she's all conflicted, and it's really not a big deal because it's not a big price item. Anyway, we don't need to chase <laughs> that rabbit trail. Um, we got stuff to do. So, JM, you got an album of the week for us? I believe that I do. Let me look under here. Oh, yeah. Here it is. <laughs> <laughs> is that the album of the week? <laughs> it's not, but I've hit it now. So, Brad, yeah. it's all you. We'll, are we, go- we'll, wait, we'll come are we, back. Are we going out of order? Wow. I can't hit it. It's chaos. It's chaos. Took me a moment to readjust. <laughs> well, welcome to Bradford's Book Club. We're glad that you are here. I am very excited about the book that I am recommending this recommending this week. It is a book authored by Robert Eustra and Alyssa Wilkinson, titled, I think y'all are gonna be pumped about this title, How to Survive the Apocalypse. <laughs> Zombies. Uh <laughs> Cyclones, Faith and Politics. At the End of the World, forward by Andy Crouch. So, we've talked about Brett McCracken before on the podcast, have we not? Yes. So, McCracken writes a uh, recommendation for the book. He says, an exceptional piece of theologically rigorous, culturally perceptive criticism. With Charles Taylor's monumental book, A Secular Age is a Guide, Eustra and Wilkinson show how narratives of dystopian apocalypse in contemporary film and television reveal deep philosophical, theological, and existential truths about today's world. Whether dissecting Mad Men or The Hunger Games, Scandal, or Game of Thrones, this book's analysis is timely, wide-ranging, and coherent, shedding light on power, politics, identity, and more in the 21st century. So for all you Walking Dead fans, when people said that that is just insanity, why are you watching that? Little did you know that you were in the midst of something that was deeply telling about our age and might have some theological or philosophical import. That's what Wilkinson and Eustra do in the book. (laughs) So... uh, I'm aware of Alyssa Wilkinson. She is a film critic, 
she was a professor, I don't know if she still is, a professor of English in the humanities at King's College in New York. And Robert Eustra is the director of the Center of Christian Scholarship. He's a professor as well at Redeemer University College. I believe he's a philosopher. And so, yeah, they give incisive insights into uh, contemporary pop culture, and it's an apocalyptic bent. Uh, so check it out. Is this a new book? It's not. It came out in 2016. Okay. She's a great follow on Twitter. I follow her, and I enjoy her movie reviews. She's got great her, movie reviews. Just really just her general commentary on film and TV is really great. Yeah. So what did these apocalyptic stories reveal about us now? Wow. That sounds like a fun read. I like it. I like yep. it. All right. Great so, recommendation. So, so now may I ask, JM, do you have an album? I think I found it this time. JM's album of the week. Him, be my flowers. Oh, yes. Why? I'm take you back to the 1950s. Yeah, did we just enter a speakeasy? I'm going to take you back to gospel music, Brad. Oh, gospel sorry. music. That's my bad. In Nashville. Speakeasy is like in the 20s too, Brad. That's like, you know, during Prohibition. I'm watching a show about Prohibition. That's a little gospel music, <laughs> blues, R&B-based label, Nashboro Records. I love this. Did we just enter a, goss- a church? What you're listening to now is a track called Give Me My Flowers by a gospel group called The Consolers. The album recommendation for this week is actually a vinyl release from Third Man Records. Now, if you don't know what Third Man Records is, it's, they're based out of Nashville, Tennessee. They have locations in Detroit as well. It is a record label uh, vinyl print and studio that was started by Jack White of the White Stripes. He's always doing something. He's got a million side projects. He does his own music, but he also has this love for music history. And they did a special compilation vinyl release called Give Me My Flowers of these songs and artists that were uh, recorded and released on Nashboro Records in the 50s, 60s. I think there's maybe some 70s stuff in here as well. Can you only listen to but it on primarily vinyl? 50s and 60s. Is there a digital copy? So this is, what I'm playing right now is off of Spotify, but this is a different album. It's a different compilation called The Best of Nashboro Gospel. But this song is on the vinyl. And I don't think, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think the third man release is on any streaming services. Gotcha. I think it's vinyl only. Now, Third Man Records is super cool. They have a lot of really cool releases, a lot of limited edition things, exclusive uh, prints. It's j- definitely check out their website. I love what they're doing, but I've really enjoyed listening to this record. It's got a lot of old school gospel on it. Just really takes you back to a time. And man, Jack White is really serious about music history and and gospel being a part of that that history. So, wow. yes, it's not in any ironic way whatsoever. It's, they take it very seriously. So, Love yeah, it. very cool. Pretty cool. So that is the album of the week. Now, before we move on, we do have an email that we need to address. Oh. So let's take a trip down. Let's get our flashlights. Let's get a GPS, maybe, just in case we need it. Maybe we need some snacks. 
some trail mix. An atlas in case that GPS doesn't work. Maybe a tent a if we get stuck. Maybe a cell phone. Probably won't get any cell phone reception. So walkie-talkie. Sprint and, and is not available. So here we go down to the email corner. Email corner. This week our email comes from Kenneth McCants. Ah. As my Apple Mail reads. Yes. As the, as the crow flies. It's been a while, Kenny. It's yes. Been a while. Kenny sent us an email. It's been a while. And he titled <laughs> it part of the part of the conversation. That was his title. Subject mm. line, excuse me. Mm. Where does that phrase come from, Brad? I don't know. Let's find out. I have no idea. Maybe and he he's said reveal that to us. He said, "Howdy shades, gentlemen. Been a while. I unfortunately <laughs> fell a few episodes behind and haven't really gone to listen for the last for the past couple of months. Picking I, it back up again. That's unacceptable. And I'm really digging Brad's attempt at making up his own catchphrase. Real classy. <laughs> In addition to catching back up with the podcast, I'm trying to push myself to work on some creative projects. Attached below is an attempt at recreating Brad's face in somewhat retro art style with his aforementioned catchphrase. Also attached is the picture I used as reference because this was a lot harder than I thought. That's always what you want to hear artists say when <laughs> it's hard they're to draw your face. recreating your face. A lot harder than I thought it would be, and I want you to know that the image is indeed supposed to be Brad. <laughs> Enjoy, I guess, Kenny. And attached is, what, an image that says Shades Midweek were your part of the conversation. Ah, and it's a picture it of my face. And I don't know if I would say this is flattering. <laughs> we're going to post this to Instagram, right? But, yes. But based upon the picture, I can see what he was trying to do. <laughs> And it's causing me to reflect and get a little insecure on my appearance. I think we need to get this printed massively and hang it on the wall in here. That's right. Well, this will no doubt have to be posted to social media. Well, we love Kenny here at the show. Kenny made a poster for the email corridor last year. That's right. I forgot we contracted him. So you know, we need to get that. that blown up, printed out and blown up, and then this new one. Well, you know, Kenny one. currently yeah. works like at a place that prints. Kenny, That's right. Kenny, do you he get does. employee benefits? Can you print some of these yeah, things? Is this like high quality printing? You know what? I, I just love how vain we are that he <laughs> he made a logo before and we didn't think to print it. And then he makes a logo in my face. And I'm like, yeah, you, we need to print this. Make a poster. Put it on the wall. Uh, Kenny, so, maybe wow, you can Kenny. do one for each segment. Maybe one for Bradford's Book Club. Wow. One for James Album of the Week. What, a, what an ask. But, you know, Kenny is yeah, right. Pastor Facts, maybe. That's right. At Shades Midweek, we really love to see ourselves as a community at Shades Midweek. And every conversation we have, we leave an open seat at the table for you to sit down and give us your thoughts. Because Brad, at Shades you, no, Midweek... No, no, you don't get to say your catchphrase till the end of the episode. Those are the rules. We agreed on it. I don't remember agreeing on this. <laughs> I don't you remember agreeing on this. Or Brad. <laughs> no, no one will know. No could, one will know. could be Brad. <laughs> I, will I, don't know. I will continue to be a voice of and for the people, <laughs> despite the resistance that's met. But Kenny, thank you for emailing in. Thank you for your contribution. We look forward to more images with other people's faces. Brad, between your being a voice of the people and your parking lot announcement on Sunday, that's a Bradford campaign promise. I'm, I'm beginning to think, are you are you running for something soon? Yes, you know, 
after the last few years, I, I've really thought, man, politics would be something that's really great to get into. <laughs> this is a wonderful time. Yes, time. exactly. All, All right. right. Well, gentlemen, what we actually are going to do today is another episode of Pastor Facts. If you haven't heard one of those, it's FAQs. Right. A promised episode of Pastor Facts. Yeah, yeah. Frequently Asked Questions. Pastor Facts. Um, there are questions that uh, all of us get asked fairly regularly as pastors, and every now and then we take an episode to address one of those. And this one comes from this past Sunday, which was actually kind of funny. It was at the end of the service that I made an announcement and told everybody, I'm like, hey, we're going to do a Shades Midweek episode about this this week. It was the second service, right? Yes. 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 And uh, and that was when Brad and John Mark found out that we were going to do a Midweek mm-hmm. episode about yep, exactly. it. Exactly. Oh, but anyway, um, so on Sunday, we're, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount right now, and we hit a very central passage. It's a passage that contains the thesis statement of the sermon. So it's Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. And these verses start off with Jesus saying, uh, do not think, do not consider uh, that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he goes on to make more extensive comments about the law and what it means that he's not abolishing it and so forth and so on. He gets to the thesis statement in verse 20 where he says, uh, I don't have it in front of me. I'm I'm just trying to paraphrase. He says, truly I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not even enter the kingdom of God. Um, And so the passage has a, a lot to say about a frequently asked question. And what's and that? The frequently asked question, Brad, thank you, is how do Christians relate to the Old Testament? Like, in light of the fact that Jesus has come, does that change how we relate to the Old Testament at all? Like, I mean, when I read this thing, it's, it's, it's chock full of laws, especially the question really centers around typically the law. And it's like, man, is this something I'm supposed to keep and I'm supposed to follow down to the letter? Uh, or does the coming of Christ affect how this relates to me? And if so, how? And, yep. and so this passage obviously deals with that to a, to a large extent because it talks about the way that Christ uh, does affect our view of the law. And it, he doesn't abolish it, meaning destroy it. It's not gone. It's still there. It's still authoritative. It's still the word of God, all of those things. Um, but at the same time, he says that he fulfills it. So in other words, he does affect it somehow. So we explored a fair amount of that. On Sunday, but anytime you're dealing with a theological issue this large, there's no way to cover everything, to cover every question that everybody has. And so yep. I thought that here on Shades Midweek, it might be a good place for us to uh, sift through some of the stuff that hit the cutting room floor as yep. I was writing the sermon. Again, we're not going to cover everything, not going to answer every question. Um, I still have questions. <laughs> um, this is one of the mo- I, I think I said something to this effect on something. This is one of the thorniest like theological issues uh, that gets debated and of which there are tons of views and thoughts on. Yeah, I feel like on face value, maybe when Christians think about it, they say, oh yeah, Christ filled the law, so we don't sacrifice animals anymore, we can eat these things. But then when you start getting the particulars, it can get a little more complicated and overwhelming. And you right. begin to think, oh, how do we think about this? Right. Well, and and... There's questions that uh, get really practical. I mean, you mentioned, well, we both mentioned politics earlier. Yep. So a lot of, you know, in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, a lot of the laws concerned the way in which the country of Israel should be run because God's people, his covenant people at the time, were a geopolitical unit. Mm -hmm. 
And so that begs the question, should Christians in the countries they live in uh, attempt to bring about rule of law according to the word of God? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that, that's a huge theological question. Yeah. You know, um, another one I see is around Sabbath. I see a lot of people mm-hmm. talking about Sabbath and then the way they talk about it. There seems to be some confusion. Uh, yeah. Rather, is this something that's still prescribed to us? Is this mean I need to stay at home and watch TV? Did Christ fulfill it? Right. It means I don't need to think about it anymore. Right. So well, the devil really is in the details. Yeah. Yeah. And it's even if you think even if you're what would be termed a Sabbatarian, meaning you think mm. that Sabbath needs to be practiced. Do you think it falls on Saturday? which is what the Seventh-day Adventists say? Yeah. Or do you think it's been changed to Sunday? There there are people who worship on Sunday, and they are Sabbatarians. Mm. Um, and, I mean, there are people in Reform, Protestant circles, that right. are Sabbatarian. Yep. Uh, I definitely, just growing up, I, don't, I, don't, I did not grow up in a congregation that was Sabbatarian or what have not, but I would have talked that way. Like, if you'd asked me what the Sabbath was, I'd have been like, Sunday. You know, yep. I mean, that's just naturally kind of what I picked up is how we talked about it. Yep. So another one of, I've been asked is the 10 commandments. Why right. do we still observe the 10 commandments? If the law has been fulfilled, Yes, that sort of thing. So yeah. you and can I, see the complexity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And on Sunday we, we tried to talk about how there are two cliffs. I tried to lay out the big pieces. Like here are the things that I think we know for absolute certain, you know, when, before we get into all the, the weeds and what we know for certain, I would say are three things. Uh, and they have to do with the two cliffs and the one Christ. So the two cliffs, Jesus says, don't abolish the law, destroy it, just get rid of it. So I would say that's thing we know, number one, we can't chunk the Old Testament. Don't cut it out. Don't cut it out. It's still the word of God, it's still authoritative, and it's still relevant to us and to our lives. We know that. That is, that is we know that. Cliff number two, though, is trying to apply the law to your life without Christ, like, like like as if Christ's coming never happened. And I think Jesus, by saying he fulfills the law, makes very clear that that's a cliff. Don't do, You can't do that. Jesus doesn't read the law that way. The disciples don't. The New Testament doesn't. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I think those are two things we know for certain. And the third thing I think we know for certain is that the law must be read through Christ. He fulfilled it. So however we're going to read it, he's like our lens through which we're looking at this thing. Now, that's where the rub occurs, right? That's mm-hmm. where all the disagreements are. What yeah. does it mean? What does that look like? Yeah, that Christ full of, you know, what does it What does it look like? So without any further ado, shall we venture onto the cutting room floor? Yeah, let's get to that. Yeah. So I'm just now actually looking down at my notes for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> trying to find where we are in the flow of this. So, yeah, so I basically just talked about how we relate to the Old Testament through Christ, through his fulfillment. And and I, I said this, but let me put some text under it. I said this is what Christ himself did, what he talked about. So Luke 24, uh, Jesus is resurrected. He is uh, meets two of his uh, followers on the road to Emmaus. And they, they are completely misunderstanding his death, thinking like, oh, my gosh, we thought this guy was the Messiah, but now we've lost all hope because he died. And Jesus says to them in Luke 24, 25, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Like Jesus is saying, if you understood the Old Testament in light of me, you wouldn't be hopeless right now. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and uh, these things and enter into his glory? 
And then it says, and beginning with Moses, that's the law, and the prophets, that's a summary way of saying the entirety of the Old Testament. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus does this. Jesus sees the Old Testament through the lens of himself and how he fulfills it. And and that's how we've got to approach the Old Testament. So Jesus isn't the only one that did this. The apostles did this. So I got an example pulled up right here from Acts chapter 2. This is Peter preaching his Pentecost uh, sermon. And he says this. He says, men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, yada, 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 was delivered up. Sorry, I'm skipping over some stuff to summarize for you. He's probably really disrespectful to say yada, yada, yada while reading the Bible. Let me get the juice. Um, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For, so here's why it's not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is in my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. He's quoting Peter's quoting Psalm 16, which is a Davidic psalm. And then he goes on to say this, Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. In other words, upon the resurrection of Jesus, the apostles are reading the Old Testament this way. They are reading it through the lens of Christ and seeing that its ultimate meaning comes to fruition in his fulfillment. You're saying the entirety of the Old Testament. The entirety. I mean, he's quoting the Psalms right there. Hmm. Yeah. And, and, and the way it does, so, so you know, he quotes the Psalm right there and he picks out something very particular that it's saying and saying, okay, uh, God said in this psalm that he wouldn't let his Holy One see corruption. That is ultimately fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. So a very direct quote, tracing it over to a very direct fulfillment. I said on Sunday that's usually how we think about fulfillment, and that's true. The New Testament authors do that, but it's bigger than that. An example I would give you of how it's bigger than that is uh, when Matthew quotes Hosea 2. After uh, This is in the opening chapters. I think it's in Matthew chapter 2. It's after uh, Herod has slaughtered the infants and Mm -hmm. little children in Bethlehem and Jesus's family escaped to Egypt. Well, after Herod's death, they come back from Egypt. And Matthew says, this was to fulfill the scripture out of Egypt. I called my son. He's quoting Hosea. And in context in Hosea, that's about the Exodus, God bringing his people out of Egypt. Mm. Matthew's not an idiot. He knows what that is about, but what he's doing is he's seeing the story of Israel finding its ultimate meaning in Jesus. Matthew, even in the way he he structures his opening chapters, basically shows how Jesus' life is a recapitulation or a retelling of the story of Israel. And everywhere that Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. So, so when we say that the whole of the Old Testament, we're not just saying, okay, he kept individual laws or he fulfilled individual fulfilled prophecies. prophecies yeah. We're saying even the story, 
the very storyline is shaped and patterned in a way as to lead to Christ. Hmm. It's all taking us there. Mm-hmm. That's why you can, I said on Sunday, you can start at any verse in the Old Testament and get to Jesus. Well, the reason is because it's all a part of a grand story, and it's getting to Jesus. It, it, me saying that would be me this, me saying the same thing as like, uh, you can start at any point in the movie Cinderella, and you're going to get to the glass slipper fitting. Mm. Like it's the same thing, because it's all part of the story, and it's all headed to the same place. Yeah, you can try to make a story about other things, but right. ultimately you miss it. Yeah. Yep. Hundred percent. So. This is what Christ did with the Old Testament. It's what the apostles did with the with the old with the Old Testament. It's what the entirety of the New Testament does. Like you could say, in a certain sense, the New Testament exists to interpret how redemptive history culminates in Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Bible of the early church was the Old Testament, and the New Testament was being written. These letters are being written, yes, to help them adjudicate issues and problems, but also to show them and to teach them how all of the Old Testament has come to its culmination in Jesus. So the whole mm-hmm. New Testament does this. So would you say that most Christians are going to agree with that, or is there going to be a lot of dispute around what you just argued? I, I don't think there's going to be a lot of dispute. And 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 if there is, I mean, it, it, it comes from groups, honestly, that lie outside of Orthodox Christianity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, everybody's got to say in some shape, form, or fashion, because Jesus himself said it, that Jesus fulfills the law, Mm -hmm. and we've got to read the Old Testament through the lens of him. I would say that is orthodox Christianity. Yep. Where the disagreement comes in is what does that look like What does that look like? How do we live that out? Yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of variety there. Okay, so maybe we could start to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we listed out a few things that might, um, uh, various ways the different groups might approach uh, reading the law. But to dig further into what I was arguing on Sunday, like to answer what what do we believe, or what what I'm going to give you a lot of this is my conviction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what 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 was I teaching on Sunday? What do I believe? What do I teach? Um, I think the the things from the cutting room floor that I want to give us um, are three things. So to answer the question, how do we relate to the Old Testament? What does that look like practically? Mm-hmm. I want to give us three things. Covenants, connections, and conclusions. Okay. Three cou- C's. Yes, of course, it's alliterated. <laughs> very sorry. I started with covenants and connections and implications, and I was like, it's just, it's too easy. I just got to just gotta get there for the last C. I don't always do that. It, I feel like there's a neuroscience that would back up you probably. using alliteration. I think it's I think it's from childhood trauma. <laughs> I grew up in churches that alliterated. It's just how my brain works. Yes. Oh, too, All much, right. too much Dr. Seuss as a kid. Okay, so let's start with door number one. Yeah, covenants. door number one. So this this is a huge piece of this conversation that we didn't get to touch on hardly at all on Sunday that helps us think through how we relate to the Old Testament, or we could say the Old Covenant. The word testament is just another word for covenant. So mm-hmm. literally we have an Old Covenant and a New Covenant. Yep. Co- and what we say when we mean that Christ fulfills the whole law. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So so covenants, 
is, is one of the organizing principles of Scripture. There's, there's a couple of different ways that you can think through how Scripture is structured and how the overarching story is structured. But consistently and true to the text, covenants is probably the, the central way to think through and organize scripture. And there are, there are more than just what we're calling the old covenant and, and new covenant. There's, yep. uh, there's some people want to talk about, uh, the uh, covenant, God's covenant with Adam, mm-hmm. or there's the Noahic covenant, his covenant with Noah, uh, his covenant with Abraham, Abraham. his covenant with Moses, his covenant with David. Like, like there's multiple covenants throughout scripture yep. and different denominations or people from various theological perspectives, uh, organize and relate those covenants to one another differently. But I'm going to talk about, how I think these things fit together. And, and to do that, we're, we don't have time to go through all of them, but we're just going to focus in on the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, and the new covenant. Okay. And typically when we say old covenant, we mean mosaic covenant, the covenant with the law, the giving of the law. That's typically what we're talking about. Okay. All right. So let's start with the Abrahamic covenant. This happens in... Uh, Genesis 12, it gets reiterated in a couple of different places, but basically this is a unilateral covenant, or you could think of it as a, as a promise. A good way to think about covenant. Yeah, I was going to say, could you give us a definition? Yeah, um, it's not a contract and it's not just a promise. It's almost like a blending of the two. So think marriage. That's the easiest way. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's the most relatable thing we have. Yeah. Like there's a sense in which marriage is contractual. It's legally binding. Like you got to go to court to get out of it. But it's not just a contract. Like it's, it's. I don't know what you're talking about, Jonathan. <laughs> it's a relationship. Yep, um, exactly. And there's love, and there's a promise and a commitment to how we're going to live in this relationship. So you can think of kind of like uh, contractual and yet promise coming together, and so it's 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 a legally binding relationship of love. Okay. Um. And I'm talking about biblical definition of of, yep. of covenant here. Okay. So, so the yeah. Abrahamic covenant. Yes. So God makes a unilateral covenant with Abraham. And what I mean by that is it's one-sided. Hmm. Most covenants are two-sided. So my marriage vows, I made vows, and Holly made vows. And mm. both of us have responsibilities to keep this covenant. Mm-hmm. Well, God's the only one making vows with Abraham. Oh, wow. It's just straight up, I promise you this. I promise you this. I promise you this. And... Don't matter what. No matter you what. Do, yeah. Don't matter what you do. Doesn't matter. Like this is what's happening. Mm. Um. And uh. And and so yeah. And and the the root. If we were gonna get down to it, the root. There's there's a lot we can talk about with the Abrahamic covenant. Uh. But the root is God promises to bless all the families of the earth, or we could say all nations, um, through Abraham's offspring. Um. Paul will pick that up in Galatians and make mm-hmm. and, and make a point on the on the basis of that word being a singular and not a plural. Yeah, <laughs> he'll say it does not say to offsprings, but to offspring or through your offspring, which is Christ. Mm. So he's going to show how it's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. But but God makes a covenant with Abraham that through him and the nation that comes through him, he's going to be at work to ultimately bring about blessing to all nations. Okay. So that's this unilateral covenant. Well, the Mosaic covenant comes like 400 years after that. Okay, yeah, what's going on there? Well, this is going to be another big point that Paul's going to make in uh, in the book of Galatians, is that the Abrahamic covenant preceded the Mosaic one. The Mosaic one did not nullify it at all, yada, yada, mm. yada. That, that God's ultimate promise to his people has always been based on his work and his promise. Ah, 
But so the Mosaic covenant is made when the people come, when, when Moses leads God's people out of slavery from the land of Egypt. He gives them the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, and they make a covenant with God. Now, this is not a unilateral covenant. This is a covenant in which God promises blessing or cursing, depending upon whether or not the people keep the covenant. Okay. Um, it, the, the, in this way, it's it's a little bit more like one might think of uh, our marriage vows. You, you keep the covenant, it's going to go a lot better. <laughs> you don't keep the covenant, it's not going to be awesome. Um, this is where blessings and curses come in. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And so the Mosaic Covenant was designed to govern the life of God's covenant people. When he brings them out of Egypt, this, they're a nation now. Hmm. Um, it is the first time they're genuinely a nation going into a land, forming their own nation state, and they are to be distinct and different from all the other nations, to serve as a light, uh, to show what God's covenant people are like. And so the Mosaic law is given to govern them so that they live as a light to the nations. And Mm. they've got to keep it, Mm -hmm. which they do not. Um, Which we very well know from the New Testament, nobody could. Um, And that's that's part of the point Mm -hmm. uh, of the law. Part Part of the point of the law is to show us that we cannot ultimately be our own saviors. The law reveals our sin. As a matter of fact, Paul makes the argument that the law is not bad, but sin in us uh, takes advantage of the law, seizes and uses the law to to stir up more sin. The the easy way to illustrate this is my kids. Uh, Mm. Like my little kids, if I tell them to stay out of the, the kitchen, and then they just want to put one toe over the line into the kitchen. The rule, like I still feel like, that like, way. like the rule wasn't do something. <laughs> well, that, that's sin, Brad. Uh, the the rule wasn't. I know. And since in dwelling sin, the sin, the rule wasn't yeah. bad, but our sinful hearts, like, were stirred up. Yeah. By the rule and exposed. Yeah. I think it was N.T. Wright that said that the law was meant to be a lighthouse for the people of God. Mm-hmm. That they would shine forth to the nations the goodness of God. Uh, but due to sin, the law acted as a mirror showing mm-hmm. them their depravity, their yes. inability to keep the law. Yeah. And the pride and, and, and so is, on and so forth. This is, one, this is an important thing to me because often Christians can talk about the law very negatively. Mm. And the law in and of itself is not bad. Yeah, It's God's good word. Mm. Um, I mean, just read Psalm 119 and realize the way the psalmist is going nuts and gushing over the law. He's talking about the law of Moses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sweeter than honey, honeycomb to his lips. It's more valuable than any buried treasure. Like, he doesn't dog the law. Mm-hmm. And Paul is laboring in Romans to, to make that point. That right. The law is not a bad thing, but that sin took advantage through the law, and 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 sin abounded, increased it, it all the more because we're rebe- it's it's us. It's mm-hmm. not the law just exposed yep. what what was already there and going on in our in our hearts. Um, the law was never meant, never meant. This can be another mistake we make. It was never meant to be a means of salvation. Mm. It was never meant to be a means of us working to earn a righteous standing or justification before God. Paul will say this again in Romans. He'll talk about Israel stumbling over the law because they pursued it as though it were not by faith. Yeah. So mm. in other words, the way the law was supposed to work 
is, yes, I was supposed to live in light of it, but even when I failed, it provided provision uh, for me to make sacrifice uh, and and to look away from myself to a sacrifice covering my sins. Mm-hmm. And that was all supposed to operate by faith. Yeah. I was supposed to believe God is providing for me yeah. in this sacrifice. God has provided his good word. I'm not doing, even when, when the old covenant was in effect, like I'm not doing it to earn my salvation. Mm-hmm. I'm supposed to live this way out of faith. And in that way, it's all leading me forward ultimately to what those sacrifices are pointing to, mm-hmm. which is to Christ. Um, but the problem is, is in our sinful, rebellious nature, we uh, not only rebel against the law, but we try to use it to justify ourselves. Yeah. So, when I think any Christian that does some honest self-reflection will say, although they might know they're not saved by the law cognitively, in day in and day out life, earning our identity before God, earning our place before him, taking pride in what we do is a ongoing temptation for myself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, that one of the things we can be thankful for in the law is that it constantly reminds us when we get into that mode, hey, you can't do that. Yep. You, you can't live up to the standard. And and that's what we see with Israel as well. They 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 couldn't live out the law. They didn't fulfill what God had called them to. And so... Yeah, one of my friends, uh, if this is inappropriate, we can edit this out. <laughs> one of my friends would say that the law strips us naked and the gospel clothes us with Christ's righteousness. Oh, I like that. That's great. That's beautiful. That image has always struck, uh, stayed with me. It, so. it, it's very, um, it's very Zechariah. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a prophecy in Zechariah or a vision yes. where the high priest is in filthy clothes and gets those removed and clean robes put on. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, very, yeah. It's very biblical, Brent. That's right. Yep. Prophet Isaiah went naked for a number of years. I mean, come on, the Bible's, Bible's Martin Luther uh, as well. It's 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 very Martin <laughs> Luther vibes. The Bible is an it's, it's an adult book. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very um, good. Okay. Anyway, so they fail, and so um, we start through the prophets to hear about a new covenant. Okay. And the most explicit passage. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So so how is this? He says this is not going to be like that prior covenant, the Mosaic covenant. How is it going to be different? Yeah, how is it going to be different? He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Hmm. Okay, no longer so shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So Yeah, what's going on there? Yeah, so God says that there's this new covenant that he is going to institute somehow through the taking away of the people's sin and the internalization of the law, which is a way of saying, I'm going to transform their hearts. Their hearts that use the law as an opportunity to rebel, I'm going to transform those hearts. Hmm. We get even more in the passage that I read from Ezekiel 36 on Sunday. Ezekiel 36, 26, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. So we, we get even more here, more of how God's going to transform our hearts. It's going to be by his spirit 
indwelling us, doing this transformative work. Hmm. Um, and then throughout the prophets, especially if we go to places like Isaiah and the servant songs near the end of Isaiah, we get even more that the way God's going to bring this about is through sending a servant who will fulfill the role of Israel perfectly and yet bear the sins of the people on their behalf, bear the sins of God's people, be a perfect sacrifice for God's people, that this new covenant may be put into effect. Mm. Well, obviously, all of that comes to fulfillment in Christ. Mm-hmm. Christ says so at the Last Supper. When he holds up the cup, he says, this this cup, it's, it's the blood of the new covenant. It's my blood. It's Christ is saying, through my death, through my sacrifice, I am inaugurating everything that God promised. The new covenant is coming into effect. So Christ perfectly fulfills the law, the Mosaic covenant. He keeps the law where we couldn't keep it so that he gets it, secures its blessings that it promised. And he gives those to us freely and takes the curse from the law that we deserved and bears that upon himself. Does this great exchange that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5 or in Galatians where he says Christ became a curse for us. Mm -hmm. So that blessing that was promised back in the Abrahamic covenant, it comes finally, ultimately through Christ and through the new covenant. God keeps his covenant. So, So what we see is that the law's role in the old covenant as as a literal governing of a nation state it was a temporary role okay it was it was so that and this is the argument that paul makes in galatians you know he, he makes the argument listen god put the promise of the gospel in place in the abrahamic covenant and he kept it ultimately in christ and the mosaic law was for this temporary time period between the two. Um, why then the law? Paul answers that question in Galatians, and that's where he goes into everything that we just talked about just a moment ago about the law mm. exposing sin. and The purposes of yeah, the law. And it being like a tutor that's ultimately mm-hmm. going to lead us to Jesus. Yeah, he goes into all of that. And so Christ fulfilled all of that. Thus, we are not covenantally bound to the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Paul argues that heavily in the book of Romans. And when you say covenantally bound, you think, mean... Think of it again like marriage. Okay. Paul uses marriage as an example. I forget. Is it Romans 6, 7? I think it's 7. Um, he uses an example of marriage where he's like, hey, when you're married, you're bound to your spouse until that spouse dies. Mm. But when your spouse dies, you're free to marry another. Mm. And he uses that as a comparison saying mm. we were bound, covenantally bound to the old covenant until Christ took up our role, died, and rose again. So we're free to be joined to another, and we are free to be joined to Christ. We're joined, we are new covenant members in in Christ. So mm. we are okay. a new covenant people. Now, that doesn't mean we throw away our Old Testament. It's still God's revelation. It's still God's word. In other words, try and put some flesh on this. Mm-hmm. If we believe our God is a God that does not change, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, then the Old Testament revelation, including the law, it still reveals things to us about God's character, 
uh, it still reveals things to us about following God, worshiping God. It still reveals things about his moral character. In a way, we could talk about how the law is still morally binding. We're not bound to it covenantally, but still more. So, so think about the Ten Commandments where God says, thou shalt not murder. Mm. Like, that hasn't changed. We don't have mm-hmm. to keep that. We don't have to not murder in order to earn the blessings of the covenant because we're not covenantally bound to the old covenant. But our God is still a God who hates and forbids murder. And so that is still a part of his revealed will for us. We, we still need to follow that hmm. morally. So, so as soon as I say that, the question becomes, well, Jonathan, how do we know as we read through the law, how do we know what we still need to follow morally or not? Right. How do we choose? Yeah. Yeah. How do we mm. sift through this thing? And this is where people, I'm probably going to make this more confusing at first and then hopefully bring some clarity. Okay. This is where people like to divide the law up into three categories. Uh, the categories are ceremonial law, civil law, and moral law. You couldn't come up with another C? I, th- these aren't my categories, Brad. Well, try. See if you can do it. Character law? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Ceremonial. That did um, not take long, though. Well, but it's a hard C. See, it needs to be a soft C with sound like an S to true. But it needs to be some really good alliteration there. Okay. All right, that anyway. was good, though. Uh, ceremonial um, laws are ones that have usually to do with temple, tabernacle, sacrifices, ceremonial cleanliness, everything to do with like the sacrificial heart of of Israel's uh, religious practice. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, Civil law, well, Israel was a nation state. So these are all the laws about how they should be governed um, and, and what that should look like from a nation state standpoint. Okay. Moral law, that being like we just said with the Ten Commandments. These are laws having to do with morality. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. That's neatly divided. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so... People will bring in these three categories, and what they'll say to help us think through, well, what what do we follow and what do we not? They'll say, well, we don't follow the ceremonial anymore because you know Christ fulfilled all that. He He's our high priest. He's the place we're right. with God, our temple, our tabernacle. He's the yep. ultimate sacrifice. I mean, just we don't read, sacrifice animals yeah, normally yeah. <laughs> on a Sunday at Shades Valley. So you know they'll say, just read Hebrews. Christ, so ceremonial law, yeah, we, we, we don't follow that in that way. We follow it insofar as like it's been fulfilled in Christ. Okay, And then civil law, well, we don't follow the civil law because God's covenant people are no longer a, a nation, a geopolitical unit. They're now from all nations. We're, we're not this physical people with a property and a land. Uh, we're a spiritual people, brothers and sisters bound together spiritually. Okay, so that's fulfilled too. Yeah, and so they'll be like, so that no longer really applies, all that, in that way. We can learn stuff about the character of God and this, that, and the other, but it doesn't really apply that way. Okay. But then the moral law, well, okay, that, that's the category that we need to, to think more carefully about as far as being morally binding on us. On face value, that makes sense. Do not murder, right? We would right. say we're still bound to that in a yeah. moral way. Okay. Don't, don't steal, you know. Yep. <laughs> Adultery. Yeah. All these okay. kinds of things. So here's the deal. <laughs> and here's Jonathan, that was so easy. What? Well, you got to mess things up. Here's why I didn't bring that up on Sunday, why I'd hit the cutting room floor. Those categories, I think they can be helpful. It, it can be a helpful way of kind of getting some grips on what's going on in the law. But I don't think 
there are people who are trying to argue it is that clean, but I don't think it's that clean. Okay, tell us why. Um, well, all the laws are moral in a sense. Um, mm. I mean, if if God uh, tells you to bring an animal for a sacrifice, uh, yeah, that's a ceremonial law, but aren't you morally bound to it? Uh, aren't you morally bound to do that with the right heart? Doesn't he go into that where he's like, take away your sacrifices if you're not doing it with a pure and a clean heart? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. There's morality bound up in that. There's morality bound up in civil laws. There's morality bound up in, in all. So I, it's just not that clean. Also, I think that approach can cause confusion about what it means that Christ fulfilled the law. Because that approach, it can make it sound like Christ fulfilled two-thirds of the law. Uh, I see. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah, like, he fulfilled the ceremonial and the civil, uh, but no. We're still bound to by, the moral. By, yeah, by the moral. Okay. And I want to say, no, Christ fulfilled it all. All of it, including the moral law. He fulfilled that, too. When I say that we're still morally bound... I, I'm not. That's not the same, and maybe I'm. I shouldn't use that word. Um, that's not the same as saying covenantally bound. Okay. Like he fulfilled it all. Thus, all of it, whether it's ceremonial, civil, moral, whatever, if you want to use those categories, but all of it has got to be applied through the lens of him. So that's kind of big banner. How how the conversation about covenant affects how we think about this. Christ fulfilled the old covenant completely. We are not covenantally bound to the old covenant anymore. We are bound to Christ. Mm-hmm. So how do we keep applying the law, the Old Testament, through the lens of Jesus? So that takes us to our next two things that I mentioned after covenant. There, If people are still with us at this point. <laughs> you can always pause. Um, Come back, get a get a cup of coffee. So I said we not only need to talk about coming back, but we need to talk about connections and conclusions. These will be shorter. Okay, so the next thing we need to talk about are connections. When I say connections, I'm talking about New Testament connections. Like, okay. like when we start thinking about, okay, how do we apply the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus? We have a plethora of examples for us in the New Testament itself. The New Testament makes many connections for us, mm. many connections between what's being said in the Old Testament and what has happened in the New. So, Sounds like a helpful resource <laughs> right? that we should consider. Right. So, for instance, food laws. Uh, in Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 14, Jesus tells a parable. And the conclusion of the parable, like this is Mark's estimation of it, he says, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. So it's like, huh, how should we think about the food laws? Well, apparently they've been fulfilled in Christ. Mm-hmm. And just in case there's any doubt about that, uh, just go to Acts chapter 10. There you get a story about Peter having a vision. And Peter has this vision, uh, we don't have to go into all the details of it, but where he concludes the same thing. Like that through Jesus, all foods are clean, which the bigger deal of that is it means the Gentiles are clean and you can associate Mm -hmm. with them. And when Peter fails to do that, we read in Galatians that he's out of step with the gospel. So in other words, Mm -hmm. the New Testament makes it abundantly clear. Like you are not covenantally bound to follow the food laws in the Old Testament. In other words, you're not required to do that to get to, to be blessed by God. Mm. 
Um, or you're not going to be cursed right? If by you, disobeying. Yeah, if you don't. You're not being disobedient to God if you don't keep kosher. If mm-hmm. you eat bacon and shrimp, I mean, this is all good gospel news right here, people, right? I tell my children, every Christmas we have sausage balls for breakfast. I'm like, you know why we have sausage balls? Because Jesus was born. Um, <laughs> and thank you for Peter's vision. Oh, but but you don't have to feel guilty about any of it. You're not mm-hmm. breaking God's law. In fact, to try to keep kosher in order to earn a blessing from God would be to live as if Christ accomplished nothing. Hmm. You know, so this is a clear connection the New Testament gives us. Now, if you want to keep kosher yeah. for the funsies, there's no, okay, yeah. fine. fine. Makes or, me think about what Paul says with in regards to circumcision. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's like you know, it, it it it's not the act in and of itself. It's it's why you're doing yep. the act. Yeah, you know, it's the act added to faith. Right. For salvation. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you may have, for instance, there are people who uh, grow up Jewish and grow up keeping kosher. Yep. Who come to faith in Jesus. It's fine if they want to keep keeping kosher. But, yeah. But they need a clear gospel understanding of of what's going on. Yeah. Well, and I feel like the food laws can be the ones that we tend to think, oh, this is just kind of arbitrary, doesn't mean anything. We can tend to completely disregard it, maybe cut out that section of the Old Testament and it's not seeing it as valuable. What would you say are the value of the food laws? So the food laws are part of a larger subset of laws that have to do with cleanliness, ceremonial cleanliness. Cleanliness. Yes. And if you read through, say, Leviticus, ceremonial cleanliness is a huge thing. And what it's stressing ultimately is the otherness and the what ho- the holiness is the easy is the biblical way to say it, the holiness of God. Hmm. And that to come into the presence of the Lord, we do like like we've got to be made holy as he is holy, untainted mm-hmm. uh, by the world and the fallen nature of, uh, of the world. And so a lot of the laws having to do with cleanliness fall into categories either because certain animal, like food laws, certain animals themselves were perceived as being unclean. Hmm. Um, Or the cleanliness laws can also have to do with uh, certain things going on in the pagan nations surrounding Israel. Uh, So so this would set Israel apart from the other nations. Yes, so like to to eat these things or to wear these things or to cut your hair this way or to cut Mm. yourself this way or Mm -hmm. any of these things. Uh, would be to from the perception of the other nations around. Oh well, they're just like us. They're yeah. embracing our practices, worshiping our gods, doing our thing. Yep. Um, and so a lot of it had to do with being a marked off nation. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and uh, and yeah, and all of that comes to fulfillment and fruition in Christ. Now Christ is the one who makes us clean. Mm, yeah. And it's our connection to Christ that sets us apart as a marked off people, as a holy people. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. So, getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, Oops. but 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 that's an but that's an example of how the New Testament makes these kinds of connections for us. We could to breeze through these other ones. We could talk about uh, uh, the sacrificial system. Mm-hmm. I mean, just read the Book of Hebrews. The Book of Hebrews uh, labors to make connections for us of how the Old Testament has been fulfilled in Christ. So, for the sacrificial system, I'll just read one example: Hebrews ten. Um, starting in verse 11. 
It says, And every priest daily stands at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. He's he's quoting the new covenant. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You follow the author's argument right there? He's saying you had repeated sacrifices in the Old Testament because these weren't actually ever permanently taking care of sin, and that's part of the nature of them being repeated sacrifices is Mm -hmm. so that you know that. Um, Because they're leading you, they're all pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice that will permanently take care of sin. So once Christ's sacrifice was made, sin's taken care of, as promised in the new covenant, there's forgiveness of sins. There's no longer any need for another sacrifice. Mm. We do still worship by sacrifice, Mm -hmm. but it's by the sacrifice of, of Christ. So that's how those sacrificial laws have come to fulfillment in him. Hebrews will make an argument about how the high priestly role has come to fulfillment in Jesus. Um... The New Testament in multiple places will make arguments about how the temple has come to fulfillment in Jesus or also in the church Mm -hmm. itself. Uh, We already talked about ceremonial cleanliness, Sabbath. Oh, yeah, this is a big one. Yeah, um, so uh, I'll just take you to Colossians 2 and verse 16. Um, In Colossae, uh, part of the issue that was going on where there were people who were saying, uh, Jesus is great, but you need these other things, and part of it were certain practices from the law. Mm-hmm. That was very common. Uh, we experienced the same thing in Galatians. A little different in Colossians, but but that's what's going on. And Paul says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, he says to the Colossians, these people who are telling you you got to keep these certain things in the Mosaic Law, you, you got to keep the food laws. You gotta you gotta keep the festivals. You gotta keep Passover and the Feast of Booths. You you gotta keep the Sabbath in the exact same way. He's like, no, 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 no. Those were shadows. Christ is the substance. Mm. Uh, you, you can read more in the Book of Hebrews, which makes an argument that Christ is our Sabbath rest. Mm. You know, so you can still. Uh, just like we talked about with keeping kosher, you can still make an argument that Sabbath is a great principle. It's good mm-hmm. to have a day of rest each week. But if you're keeping that because you think that is being obedient to the word of God and you're being disobedient otherwise, I would say no, 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 no. Mm. Um, I feel like that distinction is helpful. Yeah, your, your obedience to the word of God is based on you finding your rest in Christ. Mm. You know, and we will be given the ultimate Sabbath rest in Christ. Uh, yeah. That's what Hebrews argues. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God to enter into. The, the idea, it's beautiful. I shouldn't chase this rabbit, but I'm going to. The idea is that in the creation story, uh, you know, the seventh day, seventh day is the Sabbath day. And, and the idea is that it never ends, basically, like like that it it's Sabbath. You know, um, yeah. the people have entered into perfect provision, perfect everything, and they are resting what the Lord has provided. And the idea mm. is that's what happens at the restoration of all things. In Christ, we are once again experiencing perfect Sabbath rest. Anyway. Come, Lord Jesus. Please. 
So the New Testament makes connections for us with food laws, with sacrificial laws, and it does it with straight-up moral laws, laws that are very in-your-face about morality. So I'll give okay. one example so we can keep moving. First John 3 and verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. That's pretty clear. Um, yo, peeps. <laughs> um, God said we shouldn't murder. Uh, we still shouldn't murder, y'all. Uh, there are tons. It's up for debate. <laughs> Theologians disagree. Uh, uh, th- well, there are tons of these Old Testament principles and laws that get repeated in the New Testament. And we don't keep them because we're bound by the Old Covenant, but ultimately mm-hmm. because we are bound by love, mm. by the law of Christ. That's how Paul talks about it in Romans. Listen to Romans 8. This is such a central passage. Romans, uh, excuse me, not Romans 8, Romans 13 Verses 8 uh, through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, Love is the fulfilling of the law. This is probably the biggest New Testament principle. Um, Paul will call it in multiple places in 1 Corinthians 9 and Galatians 6, he will call this the law of Christ, the law of love. Um, that because Christ has fulfilled the law, we are now empowered from the inside out to have a transformed heart that loves like he loves. And when we love like he loves, we're fulfilling the law of Christ. We we are loving God and loving neighbor. Um, and so even more, like people getting so concerned about the details of like, okay, well, how do we how do we interpret this specific law and bring it into the Christian life? How do we interpret this? Even yeah. more than that, I would say, go to what the New Testament authors themselves say is the heart of the law, which is, Love. The point of the law was always love. Moses was mm. telling the people, circumcise your hearts. The mm. point of the law was always to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And by the Holy Spirit, we are empowered to love like that. His love's mm. been poured out in our hearts. And that's what Paul calls keeping the law of Christ. You're not bound to the Old Testament law anymore. You're bound to Christ, who now empowers you to live out of love. I know that still leaves us with questions, which takes us to the third and final thing, which I will do the quickest. Okay. And that is, uh, we've talked about covenant. We've talked about connections, New Testament, how it makes connections for us. Now we got to talk about conclusions. And what I mean is that we do, on our own, have to draw, not on our own, but we have to draw some theological conclusions at the end of the day. Yeah, people do this all the time. Yeah, like the New Testament doesn't walk through every command in the Old Testament and be like, well, and here's how it's fulfilled by Christ, and here's how it applies to your life now. We've got to draw some theological conclusions. Like based on what we do know, based on what is clear, based on the patterns we see in the New Testament, uh, based on what fits with God's revelation in Christ, we want to draw Christ-honoring conclusions. So I'm going to give you... Three examples really quickly of what I think that might look like. The first one, 
Uh, Brad is is comes from a question you asked me when I was prepping that sermon uh, this Uh-oh. past week. You uh, you asked about the really strange adultery laws in Numbers five. That's um, right. It's it, it is a wild passage. Not for personal reasons, <laughs> just to be clear. We don't have time to get into the the details of it, but basically there's outline like when you suspect your spouse of adultery, there's an outlined process for how to figure out if it's, if it's it true. It feels a little foreign to us yeah, little in foreign. our day. Yeah. Um, if you and, hit that in your devotional, you right? Know, yeah. And Brad's like, "So, Jonathan, <laughs> how are you going to apply that one through through the lens of Christ?" I, I wasn't snarky when I asked the question. <laughs> I was, I was, cons- I was, uh, you know, curious. Well, this is where I mean, I think on a broad level, we know uh, on the clear connections in the New Testament that adultery is still wrong, right? Um, not going to find many disagreements right. in the church on that, <laughs> right? Uh, but I do think that we know, one, uh, these are some civil laws that we're encountering. Mm. We're not a nation state. But the people of God are still a covenant people within the church. Right. And what's happening is God is giving guidance to the leaders of the covenant community on how to help a couple walk through this really difficult situation. I think the same thing happens in the New Testament. It's not the same guidance. It's not the same thing. We don't do that test. We're not the old covenant people of God. Mm. But God has given guidance to shepherds, pastors, elders for how to help couples who are walking through a really difficult situation like that. I think we bear a responsibility to do that in love, to help Mm. guide, to help counsel, to help think through. I don't think couples are meant to walk through hard situations like that apart from the community of faith. Mm -hmm. Um. And so I, I, I think that this is how we look at that and we draw kind of the core principle of what's going on and, and bring it into uh, the life of the New Covenant community. Mm. I would say it encourages us to bring our most difficult problems into the context of the faith community and to help one another uh, lovingly walk through these really difficult issues. Yeah. Um, that's helpful. So that's one example. Uh, I'll give another example. Uh, Leviticus 19.28, uh, which was a, a favorite of people surrounding me as a young person. Why is that? Um, because Leviticus 19.28 says, You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Ah. And uh, we gave a trivia question last week. but or Actually, is that in the Lost episode? Yes. It was in the Lost episode. Sorry. In the last episode, we gave a we gave a trivia question about That's which right. one of us had tattoos. But I've given the game away now. I have tattoos, um, but uh, but yeah. So because I had tattoos, people love to ask me about that verse. Um, well, this is where we need to do a little bit of contextual reading um, mm. and stuff, and and figure out what's going on because clearly tattoo is paired right here with cuts on your body for the dead. Mm-hmm. What what is that? Right. Well, contextually, when we do some research, this falls in those laws I was talking about that have to do with the practices of pagan nations around Israel who would cut themselves and mark themselves as a part of religious ceremony uh, as a way of mourning for the dead, praying for the dead, all that. And and this is God saying, no, do not participate in that practice. Mm. Modern tattoos don't fall into that category. Like, that's not... It's not a religious thing that we're going and we're getting these, you know, for some religious purpose to try and achieve something with the gods, yada, yada, yada. It's, it's just not even the exact same thing going on, I would make an argument for. Mm-hmm. 
And so what I would say again is there's a larger principle here. And that principle is you need to make sure that you are not embracing just cultural practices around you, especially religious cultural practices, without even thinking about it, just bringing them in, especially when it has to do with your relationship to God. Mm. When you look at the way that other religions interact and try to find favor with their gods or whoever, like don't just absorb that into what you believe in in your relationship with me. Mm. So... And so finally, I can get a cross tattoo. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> I, I I have one. Um, so I can get a face tattoo. Is that so, what you're advising me to do, Jonathan? Oh. Um, the <laughs> no, please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> you're not covenantally bound, but good lord, but, please but do come not on. do that, Brad. Um, but uh, so the last one, um, just by way of one final example of kind of how this works, drawing theological conclusions, uh, Leviticus 23 and verse 22. It says, and when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. All right, so so this is obviously a, a civil type law, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so does this mean that each of us in our crops or our, our raised bed gardens um, shouldn't harvest up to the, the corners. Or if you're a, a legit still farmer today, you shouldn't harvest the corners of your field. Or after you go over them once, you got to leave everything there. Mm. Well, Jordan and I have a raised bed, by the way. Yeah, so you better leave we those gleanings. Some, yeah, she, she grows some stuff. Well, cilantro, things. Well, no, th- it doesn't apply to us in that way because, one, we're not the same kind of agriculturally based society that Israel was anyway. And two, you could leave it all there and it's going to be wasted. Uh, there is no cultural norm of people of, of the poor or the sojourner going through people's fields to pick up the leftovers like that doesn't exist mm. anymore. So you'd just be wasting what's there. Um, this, this does have to do with the fact that this is part of how God through the nation of Israel as a nation state was providing for the poorest in society. Well, so how does that apply to us through Christ? Well, as Christians, I mean, no, this doesn't apply to us uh, as a geopolitical unit. We're not a geopolitical unit, but it should apply to the way we think about what do we do have. If we're not agricultural-based, what are we? What are our, our economic system is based on currency. Each of us have jobs that we work, we earn money, we these different things. Mm-hmm. And I would say there's a principle here of don't budget yourself to the max leave space leave margins so that you can be generous mm-hmm. and specifically generous to those who are hurting most mm-hmm. uh, in society um I, I think of like a modern food pantry is a good example of this is places where the poor and the marginalized do go to glean yeah you know and so whether it's donating to food pantry whether it's like like being generous with what the lord has given you with a specific focus i mean this we'll talk about really starting to ruffle some feathers and people start getting upset uh people get nervous when you start talking about our god cares about i don't know why people get nervous about this but our god cares about the the most marginalized in society mm. and those who are hurting the most and those who are marginalized those who are overlooked pushed to the edge yeah um and he specifically calls his people to have a special attention there. Hmm. Uh, Sure, as Christians uh, living in a particular country, I think that we can advocate for laws that we think will help those at the margins of society 
most. Absolutely, I think we can advocate. I don't think we're covenantally bound for that. Um, I do think that there's a good principle, and Christians should advocate for that mm. type of treatment from the government. But I think even larger than that, the church better be known as doing this. Yeah. Um, mm. Like, before we get all riled up about what the government is or isn't doing, we need to be like, we're, we're the people of God. Are we, you know, living out uh, the law of Christ? The yeah. love of neighbor, including the least of these. Um, yeah. So, well, and really, as we approach these Old Testament texts, we need to do so in the context of the church, in the context of the community and faith, empowered by the Spirit to rightly uh, read these laws and think about them. Think about the principle like you talked about. Think right. about the wisdom that's offered right. there and how it's um, guiding us to live today. Yeah. And I do, I'll say this just because I kind of went into it there for a second at the end. You know, I, I mentioned one of the complex questions that people will ask is like, should we strive to have laws that are in accord uh, with the Word of God uh, today? Ah, uh, well, I think uh, so. There, there's an art you can look it up. It's called theonomy, uh, and theonomists are people who will basically say uh, our laws on the government books should match the Old Testament laws. Mm. Basically, um, that's an oversimplified way of talking about it, but that's that's the gist. Anybody well known um, that I would know of? Not off the top of my head. I don't. I don't okay. run in these circles. <laughs> um, <laughs> But what I would say, no, John Mark DeRose, the head of those. Sp- <laughs> what I would say um, is that uh, this falls into the conclusions category. Like we have to make some theological conclusions about uh, this is the revelation of God. We do think this is what's healthy for people and healthy for society. But through the lens of Christ, what is the appropriate way for us to seek the application of this revealed truth in a political context? Uh, because one of the difficulties is, I would say, living in the um, uh, the specific time, the specific land, the specific government that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our values as a nation uh, is plurality. Um, we we value freedom as mm-hmm. a nation, which includes religious freedom, which does put a limit on. Yeah, no, the, yeah. the government can't exactly use the Bible as the exact playbook. That, that's kind of making us a quote-unquote Christian nation, Christian state, blah, 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 whatever. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't think yeah. I, I don't Well, think in our denomination, evangelical free church, meaning right. the church should be free from state control. Right. And that's right in the name. But do principles from Scripture, mm-hmm. including the Old Testament, affect the way I think about laws that I would like to see passed? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, uh, def- I mean, easy. Uh, yeah, I think murder's wrong. We should have laws about that. Um, but even just talking about, like, uh, the not harvesting the corners of your field. Um, would I like uh, our laws to reflect generosity towards mm. the poor or justice for the oppressed? Absolutely. Well, we're going to have disagreements over what that looks like and all that. But, but absolutely, I'd like for it to, in principle, be like that. But I don't think that that means... Uh, here, Congress, please ratify Leviticus as our, our new standard. Well, anyway, that's enough on that uh, to end. This has been a long enough episode. I'm sorry, but, you know, the next well, one we got Well, we got into the weeds. That's what we promised. <laughs> <laughs> well, the last thing I'll say in all of this is keep Christ central. Keep Christ central. Mm. Focus on what's clear, what is, what, what, what is, what is absolutely clear. Love Jesus and be filled with his love 
until it overflows to others. That's it. I think that's great. Also, if uh, there's anybody that's interested in more resources, Jonathan, I don't know if you have any off the top of your head. One that came to mind for me, I don't know how much he gets into the details of some of the things we've talked about, but one of our professors from Beeson has a book on Paul and the Law. It'd be by Frank Thielman. Isn't yeah. the title yeah, Paul, Paul and, and the, the Law? Law? Yeah, yeah, that one's going to be a little bit more academic reading. Yep. Um, there, there's a, a pretty accessible book called, I think it's called 40 Questions uh, on the Law or okay. something like that. It's by Tom Schreiner. Okay. Um, and e- even the way it's organized, it's super user-friendly, it's it's mm-hmm. way more approachable. I do not agree with him on everything. Right. Um. And in fact, we have some pretty significant disagreements in certain places. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's helpful. Yeah. Um, it's it's a helpful resource. And there are there are tons of resources uh, on this uh, this particular issue. Yeah. Um, Another resource I'll recommend that I've found helpful is a book by Brian Rosner, and I believe it's called something about Paul and the Law. If you type in Paul and the Law, Brian Rosner it's certain to come up, but this is a book that was actually recommended to me by Frank Thielman, and I don't agree with him on everything, but I think he Gotta has... that Hayes disclaimer. That's right. It's in the uh, New Studies in Biblical Theology series, which is a great series. Uh, Upon the Law, Keeping the Commandments of God, Brian Rosner, the series editor is D.A. Carson, who's a well-known biblical scholar. This is, this is the last one I'll give. Um last one I'll give. And this goes back to what we were talking about with covenants. Like, how do you see the Bible, you know? Um, yeah, it's a big conversation. Yeah, yeah. Like, how's it organized through these covenants? How do the covenants relate to one another? Um, so this is a book by Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam. And it's called God's Kingdom Through God's Covenants. Uh, the subtitle is A Concise Biblical Theology. Now, they have a larger work, but this is where I would suggest starting. And if you're like, man, I liked that, I'd need more details, then you can go to the bigger one. The bigger one, if you really want it, uh, is called Kingdom Through Covenant, a Biblical Theology Understanding of the Covenants, uh, a Biblical Theological Understanding of the Covenants. It's it's more expensive, too. But uh, but if you're trying to get that big picture, how do I put the Bible together, I, I do think that's a helpful resource for, for thinking through that, through the lens of, of covenant. But... Yeah. All right. Well, that's it. So, Brad, do you want to sign us off? If you listen to this entire episode, <laughs> send us an email and say balloons, and you will get a prize. That's a Brad Brown campaign promise. That's a Brad Brown campaign promise. Also, if you have any thoughts, comments, or questions, send us an email at Shades Midweek. Nope, send us an email at midweekatshadesvalley.org because Shades Midweek, your 